It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> I think the effect will probably, in some areas, give ISIS some more propaganda. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. And if there are folks that shouldn't be in this country, they're going to be detained. And so, apologize for nothing here. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who asks evangelicals to pray for Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings on The Apprentice, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Congratulations, you've survived the second week of the Trump presidency. It feels like a lot of history is being made pretty fast. So, in case you haven't been keeping up entirely, we now present the March of Trump newsreel. Jason, can we have that teletype sound effect and the Hitler, Churchill, Stalin, FDR music, please? Headline, in an early morning tweet, Donald Trump threatens to withdraw federal funding from UC Berkeley if it does not allow free speech and practices violence on innocent people with a different point of view. Punchline, this is a quote describing a Donald Trump rally. Headline, long-haired Dr. Harold Bornstein tells the New York Times, that he and the president take the same drug to promote luxuriant hair growth in men. Update. The drug, which has not been approved for use by humans, produces the side effect of malignant narcissism. Headline. In an early morning tweet storm, President Trump claims the New York Times is losing subscribers. Reality check. New York Times stock surges after it announces record subscriber growth since Trump's election. Headline, Donald Trump counselor Kellyanne Conway, who coined the term alternative facts, tells MSNBC's Chris Matthews that two Iraqi refugees were responsible for the Bowling Green Massacre. Upon further reflection, the Bowling Green Massacre is an alternative fact. Okay, time for our feature presentation. I'd like to welcome back Yasha Monk. He's a lecturer on government at Harvard University and the author of the Slate column, The Good Fight. It's about how we save liberal democracy. I'll be back with him right after we do the tweets. The Democrats are delaying. My cabinet picks, for purely political reasons, they have nothing going but to obstruct. Nancy Pelosi and fake tears, Chuck Schumer, had a rally at the steps of the Supreme Court and Mike did not work. A mess. Just like Dem Party. 
When will the Democrats give us our attorney general and rest of cabinet? They should be ashamed of themselves. No wonder D.C. doesn't work. If UC Berkeley does not allow free speech and practices violence on innocent people with a different point of view, no federal funds. Yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger did a really bad job as governor of California and even worse on The Apprentice, but at least he tried hard. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm pleased to welcome Yasha Monk back to Trumpcast. He was on the show several weeks ago before the inauguration. He's a lecturer on government at Harvard. He has a book coming out, I think, later this year. I do. And uh, he works on the topic of liberalism and authoritarianism. He writes the Good Fight column in Slate, which is about how to save liberal democracy. Yasha, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. So your newest column in Slate, which is sort of assessing where we are two weeks in, says it's impossible to shake the feeling that we're descending into darkness. Yeah. That's a pretty strong statement. Is that how you feel two weeks in? It is. It's one half of how I feel. So, you know, I've been really struck by the fact that at every point people have a psychological bias to try and think that the worst thing somehow won't happen. And all the people I know who before the election were saying, you know, if Trump wins, that would really be the end of everything. But he's not going to win. As soon as he was elected, those same people started to say, you know what, once he gets into office, you know, he'll have all his bureaucracy surrounding him. It'll be okay." And I think we see now it's not okay. I mean, these people are out to really undermine very, very basic democratic norms. Um, And there's going to be an all-out assault on our institutions for the next four years. And so that is the sense I have of, of descending into, into the abyss. So worse than expected rather than better than expected, but worse than expected mainly because Trump and his people have proposed things that are more drastic and radical or because the institutional reactions to him have been weaker. And particularly, we'd obviously have to look at Congress here, where a few Republicans stood up to him on the Muslim ban, but in general, they've been laying down about everything. Yeah, so on the institutional side, I think it's complicated. So again, people who thought that Republicans, moderate Republicans, would finally grow a spine and actually stand up to Donald Trump, I think have to look at the last two weeks and say, It's not happening. Perhaps it'll happen once Trump's approval ratings drop below 30%. Perhaps it'll happen if the administration goes over rails in some big way. But for now, you know, there's been a little bit of well-calibrated grumbling. There's been a little bit of people saying, I'm not quite happy with this. But in the end, the Republicans have been voting for Trump's nominees. They haven't been really standing up to his policies. So, 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 So there's something to worry about there as well. There is something I'm optimistic about as well. And this is why I've sort of been feeling 
really split in a deep way for the last two weeks, which is that, that you know, after years of me going on about the threat to liberal democracy and people aren't as invested in the system as they used to be anymore, and we really have to worry about an attack on democratic norms, and people always looked at me with a little bit of skepticism and stuff, you know, I was fearful that the Trump White House would erode democratic norms in a slow, subtle way over time, and we would never quite stand up to it. And that fear is gone, because for the last two weeks, we've seen a wonderful engagement by ordinary people, not just Women's March, the spontaneous protests against the executive order on, on, on immigration and on the refugees, a lot of organizing, a lot of energy, and I think the clear realization that, that the republic is now in danger. So it's a full frontal attack, but a full frontal reaction on the part of the public. And, and you're, you're talking about these protests, starting with the Women's March, but all the spontaneous protests at the, at the airports and over the weekend against the immigration ban. Exactly. So three weeks ago, I would have said, I don't know whether or not the American Republic is going to survive this. But it may turn out that Trump's White House is not going to do a full frontal attack. And it may turn out that the opposition isn't going to realize how dangerous this moment is. And, and this will be sort of a low voltage decline. My basic estimate as to how big the danger is hasn't changed. I still don't know whether the American Republic is going to survive. But I now think that it won't go out without a giant fight, that, that, that there's going to be a high voltage attack and a high voltage defense. And we're in for an even more turbulent time than I thought. Don't know whether the American Republic is going to survive. I mean, I just pinch myself hearing things like that. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but it seems such a strong statement. I mean, don't we have a pretty good guess that the American Republic is going to survive, even if it goes through a pretty rough period? I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by will it survive, right? And and I should qualify what I mean by it. Um, you know, thirty or fifty years from now, will we? say we live in a democracy? Will many of us believe that we live in a democracy? Most probably, yes. Will that democracy actually fulfill any reasonable set of requirements as to what a truly democratic system is? I think that's a genuinely open question. I, I've been struck by the parallels, and I'm not the only one, between our political situation and the late Roman Republic. And don't forget, the Roman Republic had been there for centuries, and people thought it was incredibly stable. And in a moment where today we look back and we know, you know, it really wasn't a republic anymore. It really had transformed already. People still believed that they lived in a republic. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't mean that Trump will pass a new constitution and, you know, declare the end of the American That's not going to happen. But will the things that make it a real republic, will the things that make the system democratic actually survive in a meaningful way? Or will there be an increasingly uneven playing field in which there's some kind of sh elections for show, but the opposition really doesn't have a fair chance of standing up against it and with freedom of speech is in some important ways restricted? I, I think that's a danger we now run. Yeah. You uh, quoted in your piece the, the political thinker Francis Fukuyama saying, we've just embarked on a natural experiment, meaning an experiment we didn't plan to have, but that we're now getting to observe about whether we are a government of laws or a government of men. So I'm, you know, a political scientist by training and speaking to all of my political scientist friends, you know, it's a little bit like a biologist on a beach holiday and he's stung, uh, you know, by, by, by a stingray. And even as he howls in pain, he's just giddy with excitement to have discovered a new species of stingray, you know. <laughs> and it's sort of like, like, I mean, Fukuyama and his piece and everybody else, I mean, you know, they're horrified by what's going on. But they're all saying it's so fascinating because it's going to answer a question 
that we could never answer. The way Fukuyama puts it is, are we a nation of men or are we a nation of laws? And what he means by that is that all through the history of, 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 of the United States, two things have come together. We've had politicians deeply committed to basic democratic norms, and we've had a system of checks and balances and so on to keep them in line. And we couldn't really tell which of those two elements made for the stability of the United States. Was it the laws, was it the norms, or was it both coming together? And now we're going to find out, because we no longer have the norms. We no longer have the political leaders who have this deep investment in the basic norms of our political system. But we still have checks and balances, right? We have a First Amendment, we have courts, and so on. So this is the natural experiment. Is this enough to survive? And, you know, you ask Francis Fukuyama, and he says, probably yes. And you ask Darren Asimoglu, and he says, probably no. And this is the world we now live in. Whether or not you think that that, that our political system is going to survive depends on whether you ask one eminent political scientist or the other eminent political scientist. Yeah. After... Um of course, several judges issued stays blocking application of Trump's executive order on immigration, particularly for the people who had already landed at airports and were being held. There there um, was a lot of reporting not completely consistent about whether immigration officers were honoring the stays mm. or honoring the order. And that the reason that's such an important question is not just the people who were caught up in the system, but it goes to the heart of this question. And, you know, if they weren't honoring the judicial orders, it points to the beginnings of a constitutional crisis in which the executive branch is defying yeah. orders from the, the independent judiciary. What was your take on it? Was Were there the early early signs that there was a real problem here? I don't think anybody's quite done the reporting yet to figure out whether or not those officers were in some way acting on instructions from higher up. I, I think that's a question that's not been settled yet. I think what it shows is two things. The first, that um, it's not obvious that people would side with the courts over the president. But if there's a real clash between the president and the courts, big parts of the federal bureaucracy um, would end up saying, you know what, I'll go with what the president says. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that this is, I think, the most likely way for a deep constitutional crisis to play out. And I thought this for a long time. I wrote a piece about it before the election. That the real danger is that, you know, the Supreme Court famously does not have any battalions. It doesn't have a military force of its own. Um, we've had situations in U.S. history in which state governors have defied court orders, and the solution was for the federal government to send in troops. That's not going to happen if it's the president against the courts. And I absolutely could imagine at some point Donald Trump's administration openly defying the will of the courts and the Supreme Court, and that would set up an existential constitutional crisis in this country. And that's my biggest fear. There's, there's always someone in, in any presidential administration who has outside influence because of their role as ideologist. In many mm -hmm. ways, in the Bush administration, it was Dick Cheney because he was sort of the guy with the ideas. Yeah. And his ideas actually were about executive power. He thought executive the president had a lot more power in relation to the legislative branch than other than presidents have necessarily asserted in the past. We have this guy Steve Bannon, hmm. who certainly looks like he plays that role of chief ideologist yeah. in the administration. But his ideology isn't necessarily about separation of powers or system of government. It seems to be a lot more 
racial ideology. I mean, the the big statements we've seen from him are about the, you know, the clash of civilizations and and white people versus Islam, or sorry, Christians or Hmm. Judeo-Christians, whatever nonsense he says, versus Islam. What's the role? What do you you think about his role? What do you think about the role of ideology in in this type of threat? So I disagree with part of the question, Jake. I Mm. think that these two things actually go together, that the nature of an authoritarian populist is always to say, I alone stand for the people. And I stand for a restrictive notion of the people. Real America, so Palin had this as well, right? Like like real American towns, not those fake American towns like New York City. Right. Um, and Trump says this. In the inaugural, he subtly makes clear that what he means by you, the people now have power, is not Latinos, it's not black people, it's certainly not Muslims. Um, it's real Americans, it's right. readers of the New York and, Post versus readers of the New York Times. I mean, it's 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 basically people who support him at some level versus people who oppose him. Exactly. And and what they want to say is to say, I have the exclusive right to speak on behalf of those real people. And that means that if any institution wants to stop me from channeling the will of the people, then they are traitors and they're enemies. And so I think those two things go together. The, the sort of ethnic exclusion and the religious further and and the speaking on behalf of a particular demographic group naturally go together with saying anybody who stands in the way of this group expressing its will is illegitimate. And so that's why I don't think Steve Bannon is sort of either against the courts and for more central power or sort of somebody who speaks for particular... I think these two things um, are additive. Now, in terms of ideology, you know, I've been trying to think, you know, is, is, is President Bannon and, you know, all these articles going around... You know, I think Bannon has a very easy hand for the following reason. Donald Trump is not an ideologue. He doesn't have the thought through marching route that somebody like Viktor Orban did in Hungary or somebody like Kaczynski did in Poland. But his instincts all go in the same direction. Mm. Trump doesn't think four years from now, you know, I will have quashed in the universities and newspapers and so on as independent power centers in order to consolidate my rule. That's not how he thinks. But when he sees protests at Berkeley, he sure as, uh, am I allowed to say hell on this podcast? Um, he and, sure and worse, is hell. And worse. And worse. Excellent. Um, I, it, this is a time for cursing. Um, uh, he, he sure as hell wants to say, you know what? Let's take away your federal funding. And so he will, over time, through a series of crises, stumble in the direction that I think Steve Bannon, in a much more self-conscious way, wants the country to go in. So the reason why Steve Bannon has this power is that he can give intellectual coherence of some sort to the instincts which Trump has anyway. Right. But how necessary is that for what Trump's doing? I mean, Trump, as you say, is sort of reacting in this sort of animalistic way. Of, you know, people are standing in his way. He wants to roll over them. He wants to crush them. He wants to win. It's just a, you know, it's just a narcissistic, power-hungry reaction. Why do you need Steve Bannon giving you a theory uh, that supports you're doing all this in it, you know, which is weird and extreme and ends up dragging you down weird byways like saying the Holocaust didn't have any special meaning for Jews. Yeah, I mean, that I, this Holocaust, you know, I, I really don't understand what happened there, right? Like, that, that's, that, that seems like a fight where we, there was just a dumb fight for him to pick. I don't think the executive order, by the way, was a dumb fight for him to pick. It was a nasty, disgusting fight for him to pick. But a majority Politically, of Americans yeah. actually are in favor of it, and it's delivering to the base, and it's, you know, like, I, I don't think that is a mistake of a White House. Right. I think this whole, you know, note about Holocaust and Remembrance Day was, was just a sort of mistake we were making. Um, 
Does he need Bannon? I don't know that he does. I don't know that my, speaking of natural experiments, if you sort of take Bannon out of the picture somehow, right? Like Bannon gets fired for some random reason and he no longer has any influence on the White House. Do I think that it drastically changes where we end up four years from now? Possibly, but my hunch is to say no, precisely because I think that Trump will stumble into the same direction anyway and Bannon might be able to make him do it a little faster in a somewhat more concerted way. It also gives us, in, in, in a good way, um, the right figure to rail against and, and, and to organize against. It's not clear to me that without Bannon, suddenly Trump becomes, you know, uh, less of a threat. Right. Another role that's, that's really interesting in the context of a authoritarian tendency government like Trump's is the role of the propagandist. Hmm. And here, particularly, we would look at Kellyanne Conway, yeah. the coiner of alternative facts. You know, she said yesterday she referred to this Bowling Green massacre, which was an alternative fact. There was no Bowling Green massacre. But when you see her now, I mean, she's clearly just, I mean, she's a, she's a kind of propagandist you would see in an authoritarian government in another country. There's also this guy, Sean Spicer, who's right. kind of the sad sack who gets put out there to <laughs> kind of shuffle and mumble, but he doesn't seem like a very, you know, energetic propagandist, but obviously he toes the line. But how important is that role of the person who just goes out there and maintains the preposterous aggressively with a sta- straight face for you? Uh, since you gave me permission to 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 curse, let's go back to the cursing. So, so there's sort of two theories as to what's going on with truth and politics at the moment. Um, and one is the old Stephen Colbert line, truthiness, you know, something that sort of sounds true. And he saw as bad as the danger. Um, and then there's a, a book by this Princeton philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, which in good academic style is called On Bullshit. Great book. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful book. And its argument is basically, again, that, that, that what's really dangerous at the moment is not that people are lying, it's that they're indifferent to the truth. They're willing right. to say anything. I think both of those things are wrong. I think both of those things don't capture the severity of a problem at the moment. And the severity of a problem at the moment is we have an administration and it's taking its leave from uh, Berlusconi in Italy and Putin in Russia and so on, that actually wants to destroy the possibility of ordinary citizens transacting politics on the basis of truth. But it's not just that they're indifferent to the truth, they want to make it so difficult to know what's going on, and they want to spread so much disinformation that people just give up. And they say, you know what, I don't know what is right, I don't know what is wrong, these are my guys and I trust them, those are not my guys, those are the opposition's guys and I distrust them. And politics becomes deeply tribal in that way. And now that you have people like Kalyan Conway on, on TV, but Sean Spicer as the White House press secretary in the White House, you know, saying outright lies, I think it just becomes more and more difficult for ordinary people to sort out what's true and what isn't. That's exactly what they want. They don't want politics to be about what's true or untrue. They want politics to be about whose side you're on. Right. And you normalize lying in the sense that you make lies so routine and so prevalent that you can't get excited about any given one of them because they're 50 a day. Exactly. So if, if it was, that's exa- so like there's this weird uh, problem with, you know, how do you defend, uh, how do you build a defense system that can defend against nuclear weapons? Right. The U.S. is capable of shooting down 10 nuclear weapons that are aimed at it. Um, and that's probably the most that another country can shoot at us. And so it seems like you've solved the problem. But what if an enemy sends 200 nuclear weapons at you? And only 10 of them actually are nuclear. The others are fakes. Mm. But you don't know which one. 
And then some of them get through. That's why it's really difficult to build an effective Star Wars system. Right. And I think this is the same thing, right? If it's one lie a day, which is what you used to do in politics, right? Like, I'm going to lie to you about how well the economy is doing, because that's the thing that I'm going to be evaluated on as the election. And so I put out a bunch of spin to tell you the election is going well. As long as that's, the economy is going well. As long as that's happening, you can actually react against it because you can explain the facts. If it's 40 different lies coming everybody's way every day, nobody has the resources or the attention span to say, well, the first lie, the first thing they said is wrong because right. of this. And the no, like I can't do that. I no longer follow up on things. I just assume that the people I trust are saying the truth because I can't read five articles on each lie every day. That would make it 200 articles. You've only a... got one hand to hold the fly swatter. I mean, you can't. If yeah. you're trying to swat 40 flies, they're going to be... They're and gonna I want to be... do something yeah. else. I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with politics, yeah. but even <laughs> I want to do something else in my life other than like swatting Swan, Swan Spicer's flies away, right? <laughs> I mean... Uh, no, I think that's... I think I think you've... you've that's the metaphor. I mean, that's, ex- that's exactly right. Lastly, Ash, I want to ask you a little bit about, um, I don't know, a reading list for the present time. I think we've, a lot of people have seen the stories, you know, 1984 is the number one bestseller and all this dystopian literature is, um, you know, people are buying and reading again. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism. And those are all great choices. But I, I just wonder what you think is the most, you know, what, what book would you advise people to pick up to deepen their understanding or or help them recognize what may be happening right now? Hmm, it's a great question. Um, I think George Orwell is, is wonderful. And I, you know, I think there's been a little bit of disdain for Orwell on certain parts of the left in the last years, because he sort of you know, has these liberal platitudes about how we shouldn't be cruel and mean to each other and how a lot of, you know, people can hold beliefs that they think are noble but actually lead to terrible things, not just 1984 but also Animal Farm. And I think the last years have shown the enduring relevance of that. Um, This is a time in which um, we shouldn't be ashamed to state bromides sometimes. It's a time for reasserting basic political truths, whether it's freedom of speech or whether it's simply that that the worst thing you can do in politics weighs much more than the best you can achieve. And that when somebody promises um, to make you something wonderful, but you just have to smash a couple of eggs, you should respond that um, it, it's, it, it, it's perfectly possible to break a lot of eggs without ever making the omelette. And that that's uh, what people are now in the process of doing. You know, I love Orwell. I've been reading Orwell my whole life. But I have to say, having gone back to a lot of it recently, I think the essays are so much more powerful oh, than, yes. than the novels. Animal Farm's kind of, it's, it's, it's a bit of a fairy tale. It's a little overbroad. 1984 is a very interesting book. It has a long passage in the, in the second half that's almost impossible to make it through. I mean, <laughs> not to, they're, great, they're great books in their way. But politics in the English language, I mean, if you want to understand how the Trump people are trying to bamboozle the country, hmm. that's about 10 pages long. And I think that is, is maybe more valuable than any number of dystopian novels. And I would add one more essay to that, which is Marrakesh, a beautiful essay, probably five pages, which speaks to one thing that's really important at the moment, and it's how easy it is to dehumanize people and to exclude them from your political imagination, from your political community, and to stop noticing their suffering. There's this wonderful moment when he talks about firewood was passing by, 
And every day, that's the scene he saw. He woke up and he looked out his window and he saw firewood passing by. Wait, in Marrakesh? In Marrakesh. What was and he doing in Marrakesh? I'm not sure what he was doing there, yeah. actually. Um, but but at one point, he looks out the window and and the firewood sort of stumbles. And it's the first time that he actually properly processes it. I mean, he knew before, but it's only then that he actually realizes that it's an old woman carrying the firewood. It's uh. not firewood passing by. It's 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 old women undernourished who are having to schlep this firewood, um, you know, and and his self criticism in a very subtle way about not having noticed the human suffering. Then mm. um, I think is something that we can learn from as well. I've been speaking to Yasha Monk. He's the author of the Good Fight column in Slate. Yasha, thanks for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. And John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Just one announcement today. We're having a live show. I know a lot of you are coming in Washington on Monday at 7.30 at the Hamilton Theater. I'm told there are a few general admission tickets left. Doors open at 6.30 and the show's at 7.30. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I am so upset with the Democrats, specifically fake tears, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, both two horrible people, horrible people. But what really, really upsets me is for the last eight years, the Republicans rolled over and played dead, never obstructed a thing, a thing, nothing with the Democrats, let them do whatever they wanted under Obama. And now I'm president and they're obstructing absolutely everything. Terrible people. This is why this government doesn't work. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.